to Poverty Unpacked, a podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I'm talking with Andrew Fisher. Andrew is Associate Professor of Social Policy and Development Studies at the Institute of Social Studies in The Hague in the Netherlands. His work spans many years of research on poverty and development policy in the Global South, with special focus on social policy and redistribution. In 2018, Andrew published Poverty as Ideology, which is a book that offers a critical interrogation of poverty measures and their use for social policy. I speak to him about his book and his work more broadly. Andrew, thank you for talking with me. Um, so you have a long experience studying poverty, teaching poverty, mm-hmm. and your recent book is called Poverty as Ideology. Mm-hmm. Why the title Poverty as Ideology? Well, first of all, I guess it was a good title. <laughs> you always have to find a good title. But uh, no, more seriously. It's fundamentally reflecting the fact that this understanding that poverty measurements are fundamentally rooted in norms. Norms are fundamentally rooted in not just objective social scientific measurement, but are, are, are based on value judgments, are based on ideologies, are based on perceptions of what people need. So it does have a structural empirical basis to it, but it is fundamentally influenced by ideologies, power relations, and so on, and has to be understood in relative to that. And even if you try and abstract yourself from that by creating a more objective social scientific measurement, by the abstraction in itself is a form of politics as well. Uh, that that also becomes biased because you are still making choices. So there's that aspect about how everything's underpinned by norms and choices and values and so on, which is a fundamentally political process. So the, the poverty line, setting poverty lines, is a political exercise. It's a political project. And any effort to conceal that politics is, is an act of <laughs> depoliticizing something that's fundamentally political. Can you give an example of yeah. how a vision of society or norms, political vision, influences the intricacy of a a poverty measure. Totally. I think in particular the construction of what we call absolute poverty lines, whether income or multidimensional. So it's not a question of how many dimensions you throw in, but it's the way they're conceived on an absolute basis. I think they're predisposed towards acceleration of the material gains of capitalism, so to speak while becoming increasingly redundant over time to how the experience of poor people's lives is actually being restructured through, the, through these processes. And the simplest example of that, as you get, get, getting back to your point, is food. You know, It's that we live in a world where, in many countries around the world, you have uh, declining, well, according to the conventional measures of, inc- of, of, of income or expenditure, money metric poverty, you have declining poverty. But this is in dissonance with uh, sustained high levels of malnutrition that are not reducing. What you often get from the conventional mainstream economists saying that this is because perhaps poor people make bad choices. <laughs> if we can just tweak their, the, uh, do a good RCT that finds the right incentives, <laughs> tweaks their incentives, and then they'll actually these poor people will be, be, behave better and we'll, we'll actually see the, uh, we'll see the two moving together. It could also just be that the poverty measures are becoming increasingly redundant. People who are well above the conventionally measured poverty line but still experiencing hunger, for instance. You know. mm-hmm. But 
Do you think that scholars working on mm. multidimensional poverty measures yeah, would yeah. say that's exactly why we have those multidimensional measures and we take into account indicators of food security and nutrition outcomes? True. So do you think that solves part of the problem but then maybe creates new problems in terms of poverty measurements? Well, I think they're, I think they're coming from the right impulse, but I don't think multidimensional poverty measures in any way clarify the problem for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is because the, the whole project becomes obsessed with basically composite indices, right? Of bringing together all the different indicators, which are measured in different units, and basically multiply and compound the problems of aggregation and of trying to make a measurement. And often because these measures are also, particularly with the multidimensional poverty index, there's the motive to make it, to bring it down to a household level of identification. So, um, and part of that is motivated by targeting. So it comes back down to the project of applying thresholds and separating out the poor from the non-poor in that sense. And when you do that, you, you get these composite measures that effectively don't mean anything. It becomes a, a ratio between zero and one, or uh, it becomes an abstract number with no unit that for the average person in society, again, it's a depoliticizing project. It disempowers the poor person from having any understanding of how you're representing their poverty. So it, it hinders their ability con to contest those measures. But also in the multidimensional measures, you also have, again, the absolute concepts come in. So if we set certain standards over time and then use that as a, as a means to evaluate how poverty is changing, and yet those standards are changing also over time, a simple example is education. Right? When you're dealing with largely rural societies and peasant agriculture and so on, yes, uh, literacy would be good, but actually you can still function as an illiterate person in that society without necessarily falling into poverty. You, you can have very wealthy people who are illiterate, for instance. But as you transition out of agriculture, the, the norms of education are rising. So what would be a minimally functional level of education is rising over time. So how do we adjust our measures, multidimensional poverty, to that? And they typically don't in these measures. And another example I was going to give in the case of food, the absolute poverty lines are still based on a norm of 2,100 calories or at best 2,400. A colleague of mine, Satya Mala, she did a fascinating thesis and is writing a book on this about how these norms have been reduced over time. And especially when you think of the average poor person who's a rickshaw driver in Delhi or a farmer who's working 10 hours a day, the norm of 2,100 calories is actually way below their calorie needs, full day of physical labor. What's been happening over the course of the 20th century is, is a constant reduction of the calorie needs. So, you know, we're reducing it down to the most minimal standard of survival. So basically what has become our norm of what could be considered to be the most objective measure of poverty, which is food, starvation, uh, we've reduced that down to the most minimal level we possibly could, rather than saying what would a good healthy diet need, uh, 2,800 calories for a physically active adult with a, a nice balanced nutrition or things like that. So it's the way we, we're, we're basically valuing the lives of poor people in this process. And then also saying, well, your life has improved, so what's the problem, right? You know, why are you complaining? When actually their reality is, is completely, there's like, you know, dissonance with their experience of reality and what they're being told by experts, right? And I think we... As experts, we tend to dismiss that. I guess the other thing, too, is to emphasize one of my issues with multidimensional index is that I'm not actually really convinced how useful it is to know an abstract number that measures multidimensional poverty versus just simply actually having your disaggregated data, some of which is useful data and some of which isn't useful data. And from the point of view of uh, line ministries, health ministries, education ministries, and so on, they have a multidimensional index is actually not particularly useful for them. 
unless you're actually planning to use it for targeting. <laughs> uh, the information they need is very detailed, disaggregated data on morbidity, on the, the sort of the prevalence of various uh, disease or you know all things like that, or education or qualitative, a, ver a whole raft of qualitative and quantitative uh, measurements in education, for instance, in, or in order to know how to actually address problems in the population, right? You also argue for a framework for critical poverty studies. Yeah. So what would that look like and how might that address some of the issues that you very clearly laid out? Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's critical in the sense of being much more careful in understanding the biases, the conceptualization of poverty that underlies all these measures. Not to reject the measurement project, because measurement is an important aspect of social provisioning of public services. Governments need to know how to service their populations. But at the same time, understanding that is a fundamentally political project of creating legibility of populations and, and also uh, possibly being tied into visions of how populations should be structured and ordered and disciplined and, and so on. So it's, it's, they're together as, as uh, we can't separate out these two things, right? So it's not, so. It's not just, a, it's not a flat out rejection of any statistics, yeah, but yeah, it's no, about exactly. making sure that you properly yeah. look at what's underpinning them, both yeah, how yeah, they're yeah. constructed as well as what drives their trends. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. No, and I'm, 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 I do a lot of statistical work and I'm a big fan of social statistics. I, I, first thing I'll do to understand somewhere is, is to open up a book of stats and start reading about the country. And you can actually learn a lot of very interesting things from doing that. You can generate a lot of very interesting research questions because what you see, especially in macro stats, you cannot see by even visiting the country because, you know, so there's a lot of things to be learned um, or understanding mortality conditions. Uh, most people aren't aware of the mortality conditions within which they live, which is why it takes so long for social behavior to, to adjust to. But I think what we need is we need to look at the social stats. We, do, we don't need to be um, compounding these into composite indices and, and then applying thresholds to... Again, the problem with the poverty project is, in that sense, is the application of thresholds. And that's where it all... Social statistics are already hard enough to measure. <laughs> and, but what do line ministries need? What do health departments need? What do education departments need? They don't need a multidimensional poverty index. They need detailed qualitative, quantitative stats on, on education, right? Uh, I propose a, a more sort of political economy, structuralist approach to try and understand the place within sort of the various conceptual dimensions in which we are understanding poverty being production, distribution, and redistribution. As the classic sort of political economy dimensions or spheres that classical political economy typically worked with, and how we can understand poverty in those three ways and how different approaches towards poverty often implicitly, not necessarily explicitly, place themselves within certain understandings about production, about distribution, and about redistribution. Mm -hmm. So then, what would be your advice to, say, students of poverty? Is it about understanding the technical aspects first and then seeing them within the wider structural and giving it political economy angle? That's sort of the sequence of events that you'd advise students to follow. <laughs> Yeah, I think, first of all, you, to empower yourself to not be a victim to <laughs> the, the, all the poverty numbers that are being produced, but actually to be able to take them and, and, and decipher them, uh, I think you have to understand how they're constructed. So I think it's very important to understand, even if you're not going to yourself produce poverty statistics, to understand how they're actually being produced. And also to understand who's producing them, how are they produced. I always tell my students, I'm not concerned if you tell me the poverty rate is 25%, because it doesn't mean anything. 
25% is number, whether it's uh, $1.9 a day or whether it's a relative poverty line or whatever, it just doesn't mean anything. What I would like to know is that where does that data come from? Who constructed it? How did they construct it? On the basis of what statistics, what surveys, what measures, and so on. And if you can already investigate all that, you'll already be way advanced in your understanding of poverty than just simply knowing that the poverty rate is 25%. Because I think there's also what happens for a lot of students is working in NGOs or in governments, whatever, the, the, the authority of the economist who comes with a poverty statistic is, tends to be almost monopolistic. Their, their authority just dominates everything else. But knowing how to dissect that and interpret it and decipher it and, and question it and criticize it is already, I think, sort of an act of empowerment that's very important. So for students to become more and more formed about that, I think, is important. Um, but also, I think there's the, the deconstructive approach by reducing our certainty of what we're actually talking about and, and raising the space for just saying essentially what the hell's going on and perhaps we don't know have any idea what's going on we're in this world where things are changing very rapidly and all sorts of people are making all sorts of claims um, but in reality if you actually really try to understand how a lot of these claims are made we can see actually they're very, all very very problematic and how much do we really understand what's going on it opens the space for for listening, for just actually stepping back and saying, ah, okay, well, let's just sort of look at the world with our eyes wide open, right? Uh, and listen to people and maybe give some credibility to other forms of knowledge and voices and so on. On the conception of poverty, I'm quite interested in the more relational aspects yeah. and the psychosocial aspects of poverty yeah. as well. And yeah. there's a, growing body of literature now on the poverty yeah. and shame. So with, of course, the risk of just adding another dimension to a yeah. study of poverty and a multidimensional measure, do you think there's value into bringing that into perspective more? Well, I think the problem is that the experience of exclusion or the experience of shame or the experience of vulnerability or the experience of a whole range of these types of relational experiences happen throughout social hierarchies. And uh, they can often be more exacerbated among the less poor than they are among the more poor. Where your relative position in the middle, if you have a middle position in the social hierarchy, so to speak, and you're being pushed out of that, uh, you could have a much more intense feeling of shame than somebody who's at the bottom and stays at the bottom in that sense. Or also you could have movements out of poverty exacerbating some of these things as well. I mean, I've studied this in the case of my work on um, minorities in Western China, where where if you think in terms of where the exclusionary experiences are most intense, it's actually when you get these rural migrants moving into urban areas and when they're facing linguistic and cultural biases and racial biases and so on, they get intensified in their encounter with other migrant labor in urban centers. But that whole process of moving to the urban area is usually, I mean, as we know from migration studies, migrants are typically the more entrepreneurial, the more educated, the more affluent, because it takes resources to migrate. So what you actually find is it's the the more upwardly mobile who, who through the process of urbanization and so on, are confronted much more aggressively with these feelings, with these um, experiences of exclusion, uh, or in that context, the relative experience of shame vis-a-vis -vis the dominant society or the feeling of inadequateness, whereas the, the rural peasants who stay in the rural areas and might not experience any of these things, right? So the process of development itself, of moving out of poverty, so to speak, might actually intensify these experiences. What helped me develop my thinking on this as well was some of the insights from gender studies and um, some feminist economists critiquing the whole notion of the feminization of poverty 
and making similar arguments that, I mean, yes, there are poor women, but often you could actually find in poor households, gender relations are more equal, or our conventional measures of gender equality are more equal in poor households than in middle-class households. And actually the process of moving out of poverty and becoming wealthier could actually exacerbate certain aspects of, of gender subordination or of women's uh, seclusion in households or the devaluing of the girl child and things like that. So I think it's, it's really, we have to be really careful when you introduce concepts of shame, of exclusion, of, of uh, marginalization and so on, that we don't just interpret these as another poverty approach. They definitely overlap and we're concerned about the overlap. When exclusion overlaps with poverty, it becomes especially problematic. But analytically, we have to separate out the two or else the concept of exclusion or shame or other things don't become useful at that point, right? So if we start to develop measurements of shame, but we're defining them in terms of poverty. Are we measuring poverty or are we measuring shame? Or are we measuring only those experiences of shame that occur among poor people? And is that necessarily a useful thing to be doing, right? Are we just elaborating our understanding of our description of poverty or are we actually contributing towards a better understanding of shame in that sense? Yeah. I mean, that would be yeah. generally my line of thinking. Yeah, on no, that's very interesting. So it's, it's about the transitions in and out that yeah. are maybe more important. Uh, when I was reading your book, you referred to your work in Tibet quite a few yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. So how much of the thinking for the book actually originated from that early work? A lot. I think it was my research in Tibet when I went back to my PhD after I had been living with Tibetan exiles in India for seven years. But at that point, I wasn't doing academic research mm. on these things. It was when I then did my PhD on research uh, among Tibetans in China where I was then going back to engaging with poverty research, engaging with the social exclusion concepts and so on, and to try and see how useful those were, these, these concepts were to really understand what was happening on the ground. I mean, it was actually in the first year of my PhD where I went through all the data and sliced it every which way I could to try and figure out to what degree poverty and inequality were useful to understand what was actually happening on the ground. I mean, one thing that really struck me, for instance, was... Um, the Tibetans are portrayed as the poorest in China, right? The, the, you even hear that today, that it's the, one of the poorest regions in China, they're dirt poor, and hence the Chinese are having all these development efforts and blah, 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 and all these things like that. And even Tibetans in exile will maintain this discourse. And then you actually go to the rural areas, well, one of the striking things is, is maybe less so in the farming areas, but definitely in the, in the pastoral areas, which are portrayed as among the poorest, definitely in terms of human development considerations, <laughs> the lowest edu you know, education levels in, in, in China and so on. But our, our natural assumption is that poor people, if they're dirt poor, they're poorest of the poor, they're happy for any form of work, whatever the work, whatever the wage, they just go for it because it's better than whatever they have, which is nothing. And actually, in that context, a lot of these people, especially in pastoral area, they're not particularly interested in taking on menial, <laughs> menial wage labor. Actually, it's, for them, it's beneath them, and they would rather actually hire Chinese laborers to build the mud walls for the corrals for their cattle rather than doing that work themselves because they have a definite sense of labor hierarchy in which they are at an upper point of the labor hierarchy. It's, it's a very similar type of conception of their position, what's dignified work. But what's striking is that you can have a notion of dignified work, but through impoverishment, you can't maintain it. And a lot of development projects, they assume people are poor, and therefore they offer them really low wages. A lot of development projects fail just quite simply because they're undercutting people. You know, or... All right, final question. So you've, you've uh, completed this book, a lot of thinking yeah. about the poverty measurements. So where, where next? What are your next plans, book-wise or otherwise? 
So in terms of more longer term projects and how the poverty study ties into that is also the understanding of redistribution in development and the critical role that redistribution has played in successful development experiences that I think is really undervalued and underestimated because of this tendency for it to be dismissed on both the right and the left, so to speak, from both the mainstream and the sort of critical scholarship being critical of the state projects of redistribution or of aid and so on, and, and then the mainstream also being critical for other reasons because, because it's not just redistribution in and of itself, but how it's redistribution tied in with industrial policy or other types of state interventionist types of policies. So I've been wanting to write a book on that. I call it the redistributive imperative. I've already written a large paper for the Human Development Report, background mm -hmm. paper on that about five or six years ago. Yeah. And so you're looking at redistribution globally as well as nationally, yeah, so yeah, these two yeah, levels. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. The few successful development exa examples that we have of countries that have graduated, so to speak, have involved huge amounts of redistribution tied together with uh, industrial policy and, 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 and other things. So the productive side can't be separated from the redistributive and financial side in that sense. And then so I you know, use that lens to then look at a variety of other countries that I'm looking at and to contextualize the role of aid within these other cases. So. Well, we'll look forward to your next book. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, visit us on poverty-unpacked.org and follow the site on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And we also hope that you will join us again for the next episode.